WHQR Public Media, this is the Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for joining us for a special edition for the 2023 Wilmington City Council election. On today's show, my colleague Kelly Kinoyer and I will be unpacking our candidate forum from earlier this week, which we hosted with WECT and Port City Daily. And our thanks to Amy Passaretti, Zach Solon, and John Evans, as well as the team at WECT and PCD who helped make this happen. All seven candidates attended, and they were very generous with their time, taking questions for almost two hours. Today, we'll be hearing some key takeaways and analysis, but of course, we'll have links to the full event, which you can watch on our show page. Now, while the Wilmington City Council race is technically nonpartisan, the local Democratic and Republican parties play a role in recruiting candidates, helping them get up to speed on the issues, and obviously hoping they'll sweep all three seats on council. For this race, the New Hanover County GOP is supporting three candidates, incumbent Neil Anderson and challengers John Lennon and Catherine Bruner. The Democratic Party is also supporting three candidates, incumbent Kevin Spears and challengers Celette Andrews and David Joyner. There's also a fourth registered Democrat on the ballot, Marlo Foster. Okay, let's get into it with the help of my colleague, Kelly Kinoyer. Kelly, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Ben. Okay. Our first question for the candidates was kind of broad. Wilmington is a rapidly growing city facing a housing crisis alongside the growing pains from increased traffic and aging infrastructure. So we asked, what exactly is your vision of growth in the city of Wilmington? And we gave them 90 seconds. Yeah, not a lot of time, but they did their best. We based this largely on the top concerns that we heard about in the Community Agenda Project, which were housing affordability, development, infrastructure, traffic, and homelessness. Let's just give the candidates some space here to share their views. First up, Republican-backed candidate Catherine Bruner. My brain immediately goes to Florence in 2018. I remember um, we were blocked off from outside roads, and anybody within the city limits pretty much had to stay within the city limits. And because of that, we had firefighters that were sleeping on the floors of fire stations. We had nurses that were sleeping on the floors of hospitals, and they couldn't get home to their families because they can't afford to live within the city limits. And the people that were on the outskirts couldn't come and help people of Wilmington because they couldn't afford to live in the city limits. So the vision and what I see for the future of Wilmington is being able to create smart growth in our community and to have common sense leadership that when we're approving things up on the city council that we're considering our teachers, our nurses, our first responders and the affordability that we can create here in Wilmington so that way not only are they able to live here but the citizens that live here are able to be safe. Here's Republican-backed candidate John Lennon with his vision of growth in the city of Wilmington. My vision is consistent with, I think, what I've done my whole time in services I've, I've lived here, which is to um, continue to make sure that we provide housing opportunities for everybody, to continue to make sure that we create an environment where, as I said before, our children can move back and live in their hometown and afford to live in their hometown. I think a big part of that is getting done. City Council has limited things that they can do. Some of it's already been done with the new land development code, which allows for more dense housing or vertical housing, more affordable opportunities for people. I think the other thing that we can do is to make sure that projects that were approved 10 years ago almost actually get done, like the transportation bond and the, the parks bond. Um, it, it's amazing to me that the MLK Center just got, the project just got approved uh, a week or two ago. Um, it was approved seven years ago. That's, 
that's not consistent with my vision of growth. Next up, we have Marlo Foster, a registered Democrat, on his vision for growth in Wilmington. So uh, there are several areas that Wilmington City Council has a very specific role. Um, for those individuals who are have a tough time making the down payment uh, for a new home, uh, the city does uh, first-time homebuyers or homebuyers assistance to help them bridge the gap between what they can afford to pay and what the down payment is. And so when I think about housing affordability and making sure that those individuals who want to buy a home have that opportunity, that is one very specific role uh, that the city of Wilmington and the city council can play. For me, um, the way the city is growing, I envision the city growing vertically, no longer horizontally, and we were out of space horizontally, but we need to grow vertically, we need to have mixed-use developments, and we need to make sure that in those developments, we have a variety of price points around AMI, because we want to start to address the affordability challenge in a holistic way. I also believe we need to do more. You know, I believe we need to have a partnership between Wilmington City Council, between the construction community, between the developer community to say, look, we want to attack this in a real way. So instead of having 10 units or 15 units, thinking about a 50-unit development or a 100-unit development or a 200-unit development that is specifically designed around affordability. Up next, Democratic Party-backed incumbent Kevin Spears. My vision is to continue what we've already done. Uh, we, there's a lot of talk about what people would do, but there are only a few, only two who can, who can talk about what they have done and that is to be connected to this community and to listen to the people of this community. We talk about affordable housing and we talk about what we want as far as what's new or what's coming down the pipe, but the people, we have to, we're here and we sit in these places, in these seats to serve the people. And so there are only a few people who actually listen to what's going on and what's being said about what they want done. Not some trending topic that we get off of the internet, that, that we have no idea about. I think we really have to listen to what's going on and what we can actually do by being in these positions. Next, our other incumbent, Republican-backed candidate Neil Anderson. Well, first, I'm very excited to welcome the state DOT to the party. We've been waiting, and now they're coming to, I don't know if they call it rescue, but they're here. We'll get seven more intersections in the next eight to nine years. So that's good news, because most of the roads you travel on are state roads, and a lot of people are not terribly aware of that. I would uh, also say it's very important to me to finish the projects from the parks bond and the transportation bond that are past due. Um, there's going to be still work to do and all that's done on the south end of town, especially I think of Independence Boulevard from Carolina Beach to River. There are a lot of, there are a list of projects we need to get to and take them all one by one instead of a big broad based referendum like we did in the past so we can get them done. Um, we've got to maintain our affordable uh, housing stock and attract a broad assortment of, of businesses because if you have a future, if you, you know you have a job you can, might can, and you can have a career here, that's going to help us with crime, it's going to help us with the housing issue, and it's going to help us with, you know, <clears throat> it's gonna also going to help us with gangs, et cetera. Having a future is a big deal, and I, I think it's a multi-pronged approach. Thank you. Next up, challenger Salette Andrews, who's backed by the Democratic Party, here talking about her vision for growth in Wilmington. So growth isn't something that you can be for or against. I mean, growth is going to happen. Wilmington is in many ways a victim of its own success. We've got a great coastal environment. We've got um, an affordable tax base. We've got um, a lot of things going for us here, beautiful climate. So growth is going to happen. And the question is, how do we 
manage it so that it's, uh, it, 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 it brings success to everybody in the community. So one of the things that um, I've talked about in my campaign is transit-oriented development. We need to build up in the areas where we have transit and we need to extend transit to the areas where, where growth is, is, is concentrated. So uh, those, those are two examples. Um, affordable housing, very important issue right now. The nonprofit Milken Institute uh, recently rated Wilmington as the fastest growing economy um, in the country, but we are third from the bottom as far as affordable housing, just behind uh, Austin and Dallas, Texas. So we, we have a lot of work to do as far as affordable housing. Uh, we, do, we need affordable housing for a variety of reasons. First of all, because if you live in Wilmington, or excuse me, if you work in Wilmington, you ought to be able to afford to live in Wilmington. But we also need to make sure to maintain the integrity of existing neighborhoods and, um, and encourage the growth and the density in the areas where we have the transit to avoid all the traffic problems. Okay. Thank you, ma'am. As you can hear, she was cut off for time there, which happened periodically during our candidate forum. Next up, and the last of our four Democratic candidates, is Democratic Party-backed David Joyner. So my vision for growth um, in large part centers around the fact that I'm the youngest candidate in this race and I'm going to live here the longest. Um, I want us to make smart decisions about where we go. I want us to make practical decisions about where we go. And I think that um, some of the ambitious plans that have been laid out in this campaign are realistic. Things like light rail as a long-term goal for the city of Wilmington. Making Wilmington a walkable, bikeable city as we continue to work to find transit solutions. Understanding that right now Wilmington is primarily um, transit-oriented on private passenger vehicles, but that doesn't have to be the case in a decade. That doesn't have to be the case in two decades. And so being able to walk and chew gum at the same time and saying that we can solve the transit problems that we have now while also realizing what the transit solutions of the future are going to be and tackling our infrastructure problems um, as we pump the brakes a little bit on overdevelopment. My housing strategy would focus us on making sure that we are looking at townhomes, row homes, infill development as opposed to throwing up high rises on every corner. Um, and especially when we're talking about building when and where and how, focusing on protecting our wetlands, focusing on protecting our tree canopy. Um, that's the number one reason that I got into this race is protecting our environment and working to find local solutions to combat climate change. And the last piece that I would point out um, is that as we're talking about when and where and how we build, I think that we need to make sure that we are protecting and respecting space for medical development. We need medical providers, doctors to be able to come into Wilmington, open a practice and have space to do that. Okay, so those were our seven candidates weighing in on how they see their personal vision of growth in Wilmington. We then got a little bit more fine-grained, and we asked them about homelessness in Wilmington. And we kind of framed this around the recent dispersal of a homeless encampment on Kerr and MLK Parkway, asking them what the city can do about this issue. We'll start with candidate Kevin Spears. It's a great question. And, and I'll start by saying we can't arrest our way out of it. So we can't put people in a situation where they end up being within the custody of law enforcement. He also added that the council partners with nonprofits in this space, but he wasn't specific about adding any policies. In fact, almost every candidate mentioned the city's partners in general or by name, and almost no one said anything to the effect of, we need to dramatically increase our funding to Good Shepherd Center or the Salvation Army, or we need to find additional new partners. Marlo Foster 
was kind of an exception to that. He said the city needs to be, quote, visionary and consider much larger solutions based on Eden Village as a model. That's a 31-unit tiny home development, Kelly, that you've covered. It's for the chronically homeless, and it does have some requirements, like no drugs or alcohol on campus, and they do charge rent, unlike some other housing approaches. So anyway, here's Foster. The second thing I think we need to do as members of Wellington City Council is to be willing to be visionary. And I kind of think about Eden, Eden Village in this way. That is a visionary development that deals with the chronically unhoused. And what I'd like to see and promote as a member of Wilmington City Council is an Eden Village on steroids. Thinking about 50 units, 150 units, 200 units to support that population and make sure that they find housing. That would be my approach. David Joyner agreed with Spears that you can't police your way out of homelessness, but he pointed to programs like drug court, which hold people responsible for breaking the law, but allow alternative sentences. But B, to have a probationary sentence where they're allowed to get substance use counseling, have a probation officer who makes sure that they're getting treatment, make sure that they're being drug screened so that we can check on the status of their um, recovery, getting them into halfway housing, sober living housing if they need that, helping them find employment opportunities. That's definitely a more specific program than some of the other candidates voiced, but we've heard criticisms from the left about basically using the criminal justice system as a way to address homelessness, because once your justice is involved, things can get very difficult for people. Joyner also expressed support for housing first policies. That's basically putting people in housing without any prerequisites. But he suggested that only for people who were not dealing with mental health issues or addiction. Salette Andrews was similarly supportive of housing first policy and specifically permanent supportive housing. She said it's a cost saving measure because it's much cheaper than the ER visits and jail time that come with leaving someone out in the elements. There's actually several studies we've looked into in the past that sort of lay out how those savings add up. It's also worth noting uh, in our interview with Salette Andrews and at the forum that she expressed sort of broad support for housing first policies without any caveats. Okay, moving on to the Republicans who are running for city council. We heard from Republican-backed incumbent Neil Anderson. He's running for his fourth term. He supported enforcement of a no trespassing order at that homeless encampment at MLK and Kerr. He also voiced support for the Wilmington Police Department's partnership with county social workers. And he said he supported programs like Eden Village and Good Shepherd. You know, there's all, I'll embrace either way you want to do it. If you want the housing first, like Good Shepherd, if you, or, or Eden Village, where there's more of a commitment by that individual. Uh, we, need to, we need to look at all angles. Anderson also noted that the city needed to, quote, stay in its lane. He said that the state and county provide funding for mental health services and that they needed to, quote, own that space. Catherine Bruner talked about her time volunteering with Good Shepherd Center and also discussed partnerships with police to manage homelessness. But I've seen that the people at the Good Shepherd are veterans. They're seniors. They're moms and dads that work three jobs that can't afford housing here. And when I went out there with the police officers, it was not armed guards walking through aggressively. It was, hey, Rachel, how's your morning going? Do you need some water? Hey, Henry, how are your kids? Do you guys need a ride today? Can I connect you with a social worker? Bruner credited the task force with being very compassionate, a point Anderson also made, but also said the city needed a balance between enforcing laws like trespassing and connecting people to outreach. She also credited Katrina Knight, who runs Good Shepherd Center, with finding places for the campers that we were talking about to go. But we had actually confirmed with them earlier that day that while many people have left that camp, we don't know where they've gone. They haven't shown up at the Good Shepherd Center. 
Uh, we reached out to Catherine Bruner to ask her about this. She said she might have been misled by a headline she saw on social media. And there was a WECT article with the headline, Wilmington Homeless Shelter Works to Help People Forced from Homeless Encampment. And I think you could say that headline was a little bit misleading because if you read the article, which came out a couple days before the people were actually pushed out of that camp by the Wilmington Police Department, they do interview Katrina Knight. And she does say, I hope this is a moment of realization for some of these people and that they then check out their options for getting help. And she says, I hope that they'll come to the shelter, maybe come to our day shelter and get a shower and something to eat. But it doesn't actually talk about any of those people actually going to the shelter. We still don't know where those people went or where they're going to go. We do also have to say, like other candidates who credit Good Shepherd Center with doing great work, she didn't voice any specific plans for additional resources. She mostly just mentioned existing services. John Lennon said a lot of the services to address homelessness are the responsibility of other organizations, not the city. To be blunt, I think it's more about connecting the dots. The city doesn't provide mental health services. The city doesn't provide um, drug addiction services. So I think that it's you know, the first thing I would want to do is to make sure our police department is actually fully staffed. And he said that in reference to the city's program of teaming police officers with county social workers. So that's what city council candidates had to say about the issue of homelessness. And we also asked them about this in our studio interviews, and we'll have links to those on the show page. Now, another question we had for all the candidates was about the city's recent purchase of the Thermo Fisher building. And while this is, for all intents and purposes, a completely done deal, we thought it would provide some insight to how they see how the city does business. And I will say that six of the seven candidates all said this was a good deal. They didn't really have any problem with it. John Lennon was the exception there. He said he thought it was a bad idea. Uh, specifically, um, in our prior interview that we did here at WHQR Studios, he said both he thought it was a questionable deal, he thought it could lead to a tax increase. He also said that the lack of transparency around the purchase of the building, for example, the fact that a lot of people found out a lot of these details through reporting from WHQR and from the Wilmington Business Journal, instead of from the city directly, was just really a problem. Other than John Lennon, everybody else basically thought it was a good deal for the city, and there was kind of an open question of what to do with the surplus land. Nobody had any particular ideas other than selling it off and trying to get the best deal possible on selling off that land. We didn't hear much about redevelopment or P3s. And I will say that because the Thermo Fisher building purchase had to be approved by the local government commission, that's part of State Treasurer Dale Falwell's office, and Falwell was pretty critical of other government agencies and organizations that instead of just selling land to get the most money for the public, instead tried to do public-private partnerships or other things that might be economic development. That criticism, Falwell's sort of scrutiny of the project, might have caused council to just say, let's just sell the land and put money back in the coffers. And the last thing I'll say about the Thermo Fisher building purchase is that if you caught Neil Anderson's campaign video, there's a scene in it where he's standing in front of the 12-story uh, Thermo Fisher building, and he said, I'm paraphrasing here, you know, I'm smart enough to know when there's a good deal uh, for government, but also I know when government's taking too much. And as he says that, he glances up to the penthouse floors of the building. Ah, that's exactly where they're going to put the city council offices, isn't it? That's correct. So staff basically um, hired a architectural firm that did an over-under on what would be the best way for city to occupy the building. And staff ended up picking those top floors. Neil Anderson and Luke Waddell were both fairly critical of this. But it, it interested us enough that we asked a follow-up question later in the forum of Anderson saying, 
you know, is this a one-off mistake that you think staff made, or is there a more systemic problem of government, quote, taking too much? And Anderson told us he couldn't think of any other times that it happened. And I'll say over the last five or six years, many of the complaints I've heard about public-private partnerships or other real estate deals that the city has been a part of has not really been that the city takes too much. In fact, it's been the opposite. It's been that the city doesn't negotiate very well and doesn't get as much as it should for the taxpayers' money. I mean, I, I can think of a string of P3 projects like uh, River Place or the Galleria Project or the Gateway Project that either fell apart or didn't go the way uh, the city wanted them to. And that's something we'll almost definitely touch on in our next installment of our Cape Fear Conversations series, which will be on development in the Wilmington area. But for now, we need to take a quick break. I'm Ben Shockman. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman here with my colleague Kelly Kenoyer. And now it's time to get into the questions we had for each candidate as an individual. Kelly, who's up first? So first we have David Joyner, and we asked him about his self-identity as a climate candidate. He's made the environment a pillar of his campaign. But he's also voiced opposition to change in existing neighborhoods, despite many of our neighborhoods being focused on a pretty car-based existence. So since 10% of global emissions come from cars, we asked what he envisions for a climate-friendly development in Wilmington. So I think one thing that we can start by doing is um, requiring projects to have more EV chargers. As I've been knocking doors, talking with um, voters in Wilmington, one of the concerns that they have, folks who are interested in the climate, folks who give me this reaction when I tell them that I'm concerned about climate change, um, they want to talk about it, but they also want to talk about how they don't um, have the support they need to actually make the transitions. So we know that solving the climate crisis is about transitioning. It's about transitioning away from fossil fuels towards renewable energies. Now, the city council is not in charge of energy. Uh, that's a whole other ballgame. But a transitional economy would require us to participate in something called drawdown, which says as things come to term, you switch to the best alternative that is more environmentally friendly. So starting with things like an electric vehicle fleet, making electric vehicle chargers, more widespread in the city. Um, we've got um, uh, uh, sort of a stagnation when it comes to making the transition to LED lights. That project was started in the early 2010s, and here we are, it's not complete yet. Um, so making sure that we are leaning into the transition um, away from fossil fuels, away from non-renewables, to being a more um, environmentally friendly city, and specifically making transit solutions like being a walkable, bikeable city, fully funding wave transit, maintaining the city's commitment to fully, fun fully funding wave transit so that we actually have a transportation system that allows people to get where they need to go, go where they want to go, and is for choice riders, not just folks who don't have a choice. So Joyner definitely pointed out some things that the city of Wilmington can actually do, like flipping over to LED lights in city buildings or converting the city's fleet to electric vehicles. But Kelly, you were thinking about how to reconcile Joyner's support for the existing kind of suburban feel for much of Wilmington with the need to reduce the number of cars on the road. 
To be honest, electrical vehicles aren't exactly what most urbanists consider an ideal sustainable solution for the climate. I want to know what he means by a bikeable and walkable city if it doesn't come with added density. Our current system doesn't necessarily qualify, even with nice sidewalks or walking paths within individual neighborhoods, because not every neighborhood, especially single family, can support a grocery store or any of the other amenities that make something walkable. Maybe he means sidewalks and crosswalks where they don't currently exist, and that would be a big help, especially in terms of pedestrian safety. Um, But he's talking about a drawdown for gas cars and LED lights, not a drawdown for car trips overall. I also want to note that Joyner has been a strong proponent of the rail realignment project. That's the plan to shift CSX freight rail across the river. And yes, that could mean another bridge, since there's not consensus on including rail on any current proposed traffic bridge. A whole other story for a whole other newsroom. But that would leave basically a horseshoe-shaped rail track in the city of Wilmington. And one of the long-term, and I mean really long-term, proposals is to create passenger light rail that would kind of loop around the city. The rail realignment project has been in the works for a long time, and from everyone I've spoken with, it will be a long time before it fully moves forward. So if you've seen uh, David Joyner's post on social media about things like rail realignment now, he's definitely in favor of the project, uh, which would potentially help with, with traffic in the city. But I think now, specifically right now, is not really possible. Moving on, we asked incumbent Kevin Spears about his record and what he thinks city council should do differently. This is because he told Port City Daily that he has some issues with the way council has operated in the past and he wants a more innovative approach. Specifically, I, I would talk about the, the social issues, what we've done with matters that really affect people, not business matters, but how we affect people. Um, just last week, we brought along the... Uh, we approved the expansion for MLK. We have brought online now the, the we're going to have the digital bridge, which will um, educate and employ people of a lower socioeconomic status, where they will uh, get have gainful employment in this community. Also, um, if you look at what matters, we have the Rise Together initiative. We we could do more with that. So there there there's some issues and concerns that we have in this community that we could do more with. And and a lot of people accuse this iteration of the city council of being more developer friendly and being more geared towards business. I am more so of the mindset of helping people, putting people in position where we do things that helps to drive crime down, that helps us to have a better living within our community, that helps to close the gap of disparity within our community. And if you look at the track record for when things like that have come to this council, I've oftentimes been on the losing end, six to one, five to two, four to three. So I I think we can do a better job of things like that. So it felt to me a little bit like Spears was taking kind of an elliptical pot shot at realtors on council here. And if I'm right, he's not the only candidate to do so. Uh, In Neil Anderson's campaign video, he made a point of saying, I'm not a developer. We've also seen other members of the Democratic Party, especially its progressive wing, uh, decry what they call the overrepresentation of real estate and development on local boards. And I think the point that Spears is making, at least, is that development and growth is often said to be good for the city. I mean, it increases the city's tax base and lets it do more. But the question is, are those benefits being felt equally across the board? And I know on the business front, an issue I've spoken with Councilman Spears about several times in the past is economic incentives. Spears has, on more than one occasion, been kind of a lonely voice asking about who will benefit from the jobs, Um, basically meaning like, will low-income black residents from, say, Creekwood benefit from a $100,000 a year tech job? 
Okay, up next, Marlo Foster. He moved here just a few years ago, so I asked him whether he thinks he has enough experience in Wilmington to know what this community needs. Uh, the short answer is absolutely. You know, as we have door knocked for months on this campaign, the exciting thing for me is that the issues have absolutely resonated. And what I've said to individuals is, if you don't care about housing affordability, if you don't care about the median home cost of Wilmington being $400,000, then I'm not your candidate. If you don't care about public safety with an emphasis on juvenile crime and the opioid and fentanyl crisis, then I'm not your candidate. If you don't care about small and medium-sized business incubation and supporting trade disciplines so that people can earn a wage that allows them to afford that $400,000 home, I'm not your candidate. But I don't have to have lived in Wilmington for a long time to understand that those are issues that are near and dear to the citizens' hearts, and I'm excited about the campaign we're running. So based on our community agenda survey, he's dead on for the top concern being affordable housing. Nearly 30% of city council voters who responded to our survey mentioned that in our community agenda. And I'll just reiterate here, this was an open-ended question. What do you think the candidates should talk about as they're competing for votes? But for public safety, just 16 voters mentioned it out of nearly 600 responses, and jobs and economic development were similarly low. Yeah, I will say there is a chance that we were slightly biased in the you know partisan spectrum that we were reaching. I have heard personally, anecdotally, from conservative voters that they do think more about things like public safety and economic development. But I will say everyone I've spoken to, regardless of party, always concerned about affordable housing. I would also say that the opioid crisis is still going strong. So I don't want the takeaway here to be that that's not an issue. But I've definitely felt some learned helplessness about it. I've been reporting on this issue for six years, and I think people just aren't sure who to turn to or who to blame. I mean, if you're just skimming the headlines, it's gone from local gangs to Mexican cartels to Chinese fentanyl ingredient manufacturers. Another issue is I think there's just exhaustion coupled with the immediate pain of the housing crisis. Like when you're facing eviction because you can't afford rent, that kind of blocks out the sun for pretty much every other issue that doesn't hit you that directly. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, next up, Neil Anderson. Amy Pazzaretti from Port City Daily asked him about the unfinished projects from the 2014 Transportation Bond and 2016 Parks and Recreation Bond and what City Council can do to make sure these projects are completed more quickly. The, the short answer would be not to play politics in the future with a referendum. When referendums come around, my experience on since I've been on council, you, you try to find something in every part of town so you get enough votes to pass it. If we told y'all that X project was the most important project and had you vote on it and you lived all the way across town from it, would you support it? So that's what happened in both cases. Uh, we, we took on too big of, a, of, of a, too many projects, too big a referendum, and, that, and coupled that with the a pandemic, a booming economy where we can barely get folks to even, uh, you know, put in, pr uh, when we put out for proposals, we don't get any responses. We have to combine projects and combine projects where it's big enough to get somebody's attention. That and, and just pure inflation that we're all super familiar with, I don't know that we should be blamed for those things. I think the blame goes back from the, from the, where we started. In the future, you just have to have the political will to rank your projects. And, and not even have to go out to the public for them. If they're that big of a need, then we should be able to do that, vote to do that without going out and trying to find something for everyone in town to make them happy. I've definitely heard about how inflation and the supply chain and the pandemic in general has stalled a lot of projects, public and private. 
But what was interesting to me about this answer, and, and frankly, what made it kind of a really candid answer, was the political part of it. You know, Anderson was on council in 2014 for the transportation bond and 2016 for the parks bond. And it was definitely spread around to sort of provide some improvement in a lot of different voting precincts to put a very fine point on it. You know, we've heard some of the same criticisms about the way the 2022 quarter cent transportation sales tax was put together. That was for the whole county, and the proposed expenditures had more flexibility than a bond. But still, there were definitely pet projects put in, for example, in Wrightsville Beach. That's despite the town adamantly refusing to allow a wave transit bus stop in their town, even though that would obviously be a very popular and probably profitable route. So Anderson here is saying the problem was spreading the proposed benefits around to help secure support instead of, for example, having the political will to say WAVE needs a dedicated funding source, and this is how we're providing it. But the flip side of this, as Anderson points out, is that if you're not taking this to the public as a bond, then you're voting for it out of the general fund as a council, and you've got to wrangle the votes of your colleagues, which can be a drama all its own. Next up is John Lennon. And with him, we had to address the elephant in the room, the tens of thousands of dollars he's raised from the development community. And so we asked, how is that going to impact the way you deal with developers when they come in front of you when you're on city council? I've been in real estate for over 30 years. And if I made widgets and I ran for city council and no other widget maker donated a dollar to my campaign, what does that tell you? Um, I think that the, the, the reality is, being on the Planning Commission, I've already held them to those standards. Um, the Land Development Code is very specific about incentives that developers can request for affordable housing um, based on area median income. So it's counterintuitive to think that people in the real estate business want to see the quality of life in Wilmington diminish or that they want to see uh, property values diminish. That doesn't, that doesn't compute. Um, and tongue-in-cheek, I ask the question when people say, why are there so many real estate people in politics? I don't know. Why aren't there other people in politics? Uh, because I care about this community, because my wife grew up here, because my three kids have grown up here, and I want them to be able to live in this town for the rest of their lives if they choose to do that. Will you recuse yourself from decisions which you might benefit from? Um, I have on the Planning Commission, and I will. I, other than a rental condo, I have no investment in any real estate development project anywhere in the city. So this question came from our reporting on Lennon's campaign finance. And I should say, Lennon is not bashful about this. In fact, his campaign sent us a press release back in July, including his mid-year report that showed he'd raised over $75,000. That total is now closer, maybe even over $100,000. And a lot of it is from developers. So the real question here is, what does a campaign donation mean? Is it really just a one-time show of support from someone who likes your politics and policies? Or does it imply a stake in the candidate's decision-making if they're elected? Now, I did once speak with an out-of-town developer from Charlotte who told me explicitly that he donated significantly to a Wilmington City Councilman, and this was about a decade ago, because he wanted to make sure someone on council would take his calls and look after his interests. So I guess it's a matter of how cynical you want to be. But having said that, Lennon's pretty clear about his beliefs. He is pro-development. It's not like he's an anti-development candidate who's being bought off. Okay, so moving on to Catherine Bruner. Kelly, you asked her about an Instagram video that she uploaded during her campaign. 
Yeah, this was a video of her police ride-along. In it, she walked around a homeless encampment showing footage of trash and needles. That video got a lot of pushback from activists in the area who came after Bruner on Instagram. I asked her to explain her goals in sharing that video. So I have tried to document as much of my experience during this as possible, and it started off with I was volunteering at the Good Shepherd. I sat down with uh, Liz, who congratulations to her. She was actually just one of the uh, Biz Top 100 today. And I started asking her, you know, what is it that the Good Shepherd needs in order to be more successful? And one of the things she talked to me about is stronger partnerships with our police force and that our um, basic training for the police department used to come through the Good Shepherd and build relationships with the people there. And so when I left her, I immediately went and sat down with some social workers to kind of get to know the steps in the community. And then I went to the police department and had the conversation with Donnie Williams. And he was who connected me with the task force. And so as I took each one of these steps, the social workers I wasn't allowed to share because they're amenity, but um, the task force I was allowed to share, and that was part of what I was doing is I went from door knocking, talked about the experiences that I had from the citizens and their concerns, and then I intentionally did not share faces, did not share any personal information. All I did was just document what I was experiencing and what I was seeing, because I feel like it's the community's perspective of so many negative things, and there was a lot of negative comments on there, but the beauty of it for me was to actually see how great the relationships were amongst the officers and the homeless people there. I just couldn't show it. I feel like this was a case where the medium can muddle the message. Yeah. I think from like an objective poli-sci point of view, Brunner is interesting as our first city council candidate to really be invested in social media, particularly Instagram, as a tool to speak directly to the public. Now, I don't think it would be a hot take to say that Instagram and TikTok are leading the way in connecting with the young audiences. And certainly political campaigns around the country, around the world, are, are leaning in. I think of Congressman Jeff Jackson's campaign and his constituent updates. But there are definitely limits to the short form visual medium. And I think discussing something as complicated and nuanced as homelessness is just a tough thing to explore that way, especially if you don't include the faces out of respect. That can have the opposite effect in that it dehumanizes the problem. Yeah. And if you can't show the interactions between the people there and the police, then the thing you're trying to convey is kind of lost. Anyway, next up, Solette Andrews. We asked her about her political catchphrase, transit-oriented development. She's phrased it as a way to tackle housing and parking and traffic problems and has compared Wilmington to Raleigh. Amy Passaretti asked Andrews whether she would take aim at another sales tax, despite the sales tax failing in the election last year. So I was actually disappointed that the, the quarter cent sales tax failed um, because, and, and I, I, I point to several things. So first of all, Last year, there was a lot of concern about inflation, and a sales tax is not something you want to add in a, in a time of inflation. I think there was a lack of leadership from the county, which was floating the, this, the sales tax referendum, and um, from other levels of government, from also environmental groups that had suffered during the pandemic from uh, loss of membership and lack of meeting in person. So I think there's a lot of issues that combine for that. I do think that a sales tax is regressive and it hurts the people that are least able to afford to pay for it, which are most likely uh, the people that are most likely to be ridership for, for wave transit, users of wave transit. Um, I do think that it, it probably needs to be 
combined into the next uh, transportation bond that we do because actually improving our, our traffic and our infrastructure and our, our, our transit does improve property values. And so it's something that I think that property owners do have a stake in and, and have uh, it, it's a progressive way to pay for it rather than a sales tax. So she's talking there about bringing a bond on transportation rather than a sales tax, which would put it on property taxes rather than the ticket price of items you buy at the store. They're actually both considered regressive taxes, although it's more complicated with property taxes since that's based on your home value and the neighborhood you live in and a lot of other factors we just don't have time to get into right now. And in all fairness, neither did Celette Andrews. It's worth noting that the quarter cent sales tax that voters shot down last year would have excluded a bunch of things, including groceries, gas, and medications, and that was sort of designed to make it less painful for lower-income families. That made it so it would hit tourists more, too, particularly when they're buying tchotchkes and meals at restaurants. And I wonder if Neil Anderson's thoughts on stacking a bond referendum with a lot of different things applies here. If putting WAVE in a transportation bond alongside other projects might help it or hurt it. Also, I think since WAVE serves Wilmington more than the unincorporated county, I could see a Wilmington bond possibly doing better than the sales tax, which was put to a vote for the whole county. Lastly, and I hate to say this, but a bond which would obviously help WAVE with its finances would still be another stopgap. The benefit of the transportation sales tax would have been recurring perpetual funding. Maybe, though, a bond could help increase wave services and then build up ridership, but that would depend a lot on the details of the bond, and I think we're a bit far off from that. Okay, well, we've got a few more topics to unpack on the show, but first, we need to take a quick break. I'm Ben Schockman. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Schockman here with my colleague Kelly Knoyer. All right, let's wrap up the rest of our short answer questions for the candidates. The first question we asked was about funding for WAVE. The Transit Authority is facing a fiscal cliff in 2025 that will potentially affect their ability to provide bus service at its existing level. So we asked, would the candidates step in to fill that gap in funding for WAVE? Two of them said definitely yes, Kevin Spears and Celette Andrews. Andrews is running her campaign in large part on a transit-oriented development theme, so that makes sense. Spears was also a yes. He lamented that the quarter-cent transportation sales tax didn't pass last year. That would have been a recurring funding source for WAVE and would have solved their funding problems permanently, probably. But he also said, if there's a need, yes, sir, we should fund it. David Joyner committed to not reducing funding, but didn't say whether he would increase funding. He did say that other regional partners like UNCW and New Hanover County should step up to fill the gap. Marlo Foster honestly didn't really answer the question. He did say WAVE has been doing a good job using microtransit, and he said he'd like to see routes go near where jobs are. But he didn't say anything about funding levels, which is where the city actually has a direct say in this issue. Neil Anderson acknowledged the city has stepped in in the past, but said he couldn't commit to more funding without knowing how much it would cost and gauging taxpayer support. Kind of sounds like a call for it to go to the ballot, which would let taxpayers weigh in directly. But he also called for partners to step in. John Lennon said he's opposed to additional funding for WAVE, especially without a plan to base that funding on. 
He said the transit tax failed because the city and county have been too slow to complete past bond projects. And we'll add that he told WHQR in a prior interview that Wilmington isn't quite big enough of a city yet to prioritize big public transportation projects. Finally, Catherine Bruner implied that WAVE is unstable because it's gone through a few directors in recent years. She also said WAVE got $45 million from the state, which isn't true, quick fact check. WAVE actually got $6 million from NCDOT out of the $45 million that came to the state from the federal government. She basically said she'd like to consider options other than WAVE, like the WMPO's, quote, very sustainable approaches to be able to create more opportunities downtown for ridership. I'm not sure what she's talking about there. Yeah, she had also mentioned in a previous interview that WDI, which is the nonprofit that helps downtown businesses, also had some ideas in the mix. We also asked candidates about what they thought about the Cape Fear Memorial Bridge replacement and whether or not they would consider a toll bridge as an option. Now, as a reminder, the bridge is reaching the end of its lifespan with increasing maintenance costs. Despite that, NCDOT has not put the bridge high on the priority list. Two years ago, a third party proposed a toll bridge replacement, which would take the cost off the state government. The Wilmington Metropolitan Planning Organization rejected the proposal, but it's still out there in the ether. Yeah, we've heard from the NCDOT that all of those options are still on the table, including that toll bridge. So we asked candidates, would they be amenable to a toll bridge option? Spears said no. He said, luckily, we're maintaining the current one as best as we can. And he also suggested that we add another bridge either to the north or to the south. And that's actually something that's been on the books. It's been called a number of different things, the Kafir Skyway. It's gone by many names and died by many names. But in addition to replacing the Kafir Memorial Bridge, there is actually a, a transportation need for an additional bridge. Although where it goes and how much it costs and where that money comes from is a huge open question for a whole other episode of the newsroom. John Lennon said it's a hard no on the toll bridge and said we should have planned sooner for its replacement. And he also said it shouldn't fall on Cape Fear residents alone. It should be coming from state and federal sources. Slut Andrews said no, because a toll would be a regressive fee. That's because workers are coming from outside of New Hanover County because they can't afford to live here. And it would force those low income workers to pay that toll every day. She also said it could be a traffic disaster because it would incentivize avoidance behavior, basically redirecting traffic to other bridges. Anderson is also a no on the toll. He said NCDOT could do it with a new bridge, but not on a replacement for existing infrastructure. He noted this would be the only existing infrastructure in the state that would be tolled. David Joyner was also a no on the toll. He said we already pay taxes for that through gas tax, and it should come from the state budget. Catherine Bruner didn't really answer the question, but she cited the Coast Guard as the reason why we're arguing about how tall the bridge should be. We've heard that's a major part of the cost, but even the cheapest option for a new bridge, which would not accommodate the Coast Guard, doesn't seem to have the funding support in Raleigh. Marlo Foster said we need to consider all the options, but we also need the city to advocate in the legislature for this to be a higher priority. He said he's going to use his Raleigh connections for that. And look, I've heard many politicians over the last seven or eight years complain that Raleigh has been giving our region the cold shoulder when it comes to finances, especially when it comes to roadway projects. And I know a lot of other local leaders who have tried on the Cape Fear Memorial Bridge front. So if Marlowe tries, he won't be the first. Okay, well, before we sign off, we should probably say something about partisan politics and the city council race. Here's David Joyner making a pitch for nonpartisan politics. When I prosecute child abuse, the offenders didn't ask the kids if they're Republicans or if they're Democrats. When I prosecute drunk drivers, 
those drunk drivers didn't pick and choose which neighborhoods they were going to drive through. They just made the selfish decision behind, to get behind the wheel. It's been said in this race that there's no such thing as a partisan pothole. But I think that's only partially true. I mean, both parties have invested serious time and energy trying to find a slate of candidates and basically help train them and get them ready for this election. And there are definitely Republicans who are only going to vote for the three R's. And there are definitely Democrats who are only going to vote for the three candidates endorsed by the Democratic Party. Although we've also heard from plenty of left of center voters who also plan to vote for Marlo Foster, who's a registered Democrat who is not included on the Democratic slate. But most of all, to win a city council election, you almost definitely need to win over unaffiliated voters. They might lean right or left, but a significant number of them are going to vote on policy, not on party. And for those voters, but honestly, for all voters, we hope this show has been helpful in getting a better grasp on where the candidates stand on policy. Okay, Kelly Kinoyer, thanks for being here. Thank you, Ben. All right, well, that's just about all the time we have for today's show. Thank you to all the candidates for sitting down with us here in the studio for interviews and for attending our forum. And thanks to our colleagues at WECT and Port City Daily for helping us make that forum happen. Thanks to Amy Passaretti and Zach Solon, who joined Kelly Kinoyer in asking the candidates questions, and John Evans, who hosted and asked some questions of his own. Thanks also to the WHQR production team, Ken Campbell and Mark Breedy. If you missed any part of the show, you can find it at whqr.org, or get the show as a podcast pretty much everywhere you can get podcasts. Today's episode was written, edited, and produced by Kelly Kinoyer and me, Ben Schockman. And if you have thoughts or comments about this program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. And just a reminder on our way out, One Stop Voting is open through Saturday, November 4th, and Election Day is Tuesday, November 7th. So get out and be an informed voter. Okay, from WHQR, thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom.